Maritea Faltiro Avenue, I am delighted to welcome you to the last lecture in our Sisters 2 series, which celebrates sisterhood and specifically the lives and achievements of sisters who made their mark on Irish life. Before I welcome our speaker, Professor Claire Connolly, I would like to draw your attention to some housekeeping items. So just to let you know, if the fire alarm sounds, there are two exits from the meeting room. The first is to your left, which is an exit onto Molesworth Lane, and the second exit is back through the library and hall to the front door exit. The gathering point is just outside the mansion house and academy staff will be on hand to guide and assist. Finally, can I ask that you turn off your mobile phones for the duration of the event. The lecture today will be followed by the official book launch of Sisters, Nine Families of Sisters Who Made a Difference, edited by Siobhan Fitzpatrick and Mary O'Dowd. Sisters is a beautifully produced volume of essays published by the Royal Irish Academy, which traces the public and private lives of nine sets of sisters, including artists, publishers, writers, educationalists, and revolutionaries. The essays take readers on a journey through the centuries from the 1600s to the turbulent years of the independent struggle in 1900s Ireland. Attempting to uncover the influence, support and rivalries of families and is on sale today at the special price of 20 euro. Uh, so just to say our lecture today will finish at about 5.45 p.m. and we then have a short break before the launch of the book um, which will start at about 6.10 p.m. and will take place in the members room uh, towards the front of the building. Um, and this will be followed by a wine reception and I'm delighted to be able to welcome you all today uh, to the launch and wine reception after the lecture. And it's now my great pleasure to introduce Claire Connolly, Professor of Modern English in the College of Arts, Celtic Studies and Social Sciences at University College Cork. Professor Connolly's research and teaching interests include Irish writing, the novel in the 18th and 19th centuries, Romanticism in Ireland, Scotland and Wales, Welsh-Irish cultural exchanges, and Ireland and cultural theory. Professor Connolly is a fellow of the Learned Society of Wales and a member of the Royal Irish Academy, where she is a member of council, providing guidance and strategic direction to the Academy. Professor Connolly will speak on the lives and writings of the Owenson sisters, Miss Sydney and Miss Olivia Owenson. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Barbara. I was planning to begin this evening by saying that as a longtime fan of Annie Lennox and a proud sister of uh, Kira Connolly and Cleanna Connolly, uh, it's great to be kind of participating in this series on this fabulous topic of sisters. But actually, uh, um, sitting down and looking at everyone around me, I have to just acknowledge the presence here of Professor Tom Dunn, um, who's the person in whose peerless company um, some years ago I first read the works of Sidney Owenson, uh, who became Lady Morgan, so it's a special pleasure to have him here. Thank you. Uh, so these are my two sisters here. On, on the left um, is uh, Sidney Owenson, who became Lady Morgan, uh, and the other lady in the hat is probably her sister, Olivia Owenson, who became... Um, Lady Clark, we have far fewer images of her, so it's a little harder to say, but the, um, the, 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 the small portrait of, um, that's probably Olivia Owenson is here in the, in the Academy. Um, Sidney Owenson uh, wrote a poem in around 1800 addressed to her sister, Olivia. Um, you the screen isn't great there, we can just probably see uh, to Olivia at the start. 
where she sort of mock upbraids herself for what she describes as her poetic dereliction of her sister. And she says, what, no lines to thee addressed? Thou longest known and loved the best. Uh, and sort of pretends to tell herself off for not writing more about her sister. But actually what you see in the poem, even though it's addressed to Olivia and it's about sisterhood, what kind of really blazes through this poem is Sidney Owenson's own ambition to be a writer, to be a published author, and to have a career um, in, in literature, a kind of poetic dream of lasting fame to which she makes her sister the kind of stepping stone in the, in the poem. Um, and as I talk about the two sisters, we'll be looking at some of those kind of relationships of uh, how they supported each other, helped each other, and how they kind of um, uh, managed to kind of make it through together through some difficult family circumstances as well. So I mentioned uh, that we know a lot, a lot more about what Sidney Olsen may have looked like, although these are, you can see even in the differences of the portraits, there are very um, fanciful images of her that were often uh, in, in circulation. Um, but she certainly was regularly sketched and, and, um, and uh, drawn and even uh, cast as a, as a medallion. And there's a bust of her as well in the, um, in the Victoria and Albert uh, Museum. Uh, so these two sisters then became, as I said, Lady Morgan and Lady Clark on marriage. Their dates are up there. Sidney Owenson, around 1783, um, she was born. A lot of contemporaries like to make fun of her age and um, the fact that she uh, tried to hide her age and didn't like to say what her age is. But more recently, um, feminist critics have come to kind of be more interested in her kind of self-fashioning um, as, as a woman and to think about how she kind of refused certain kind of constructions around, uh, around age. And her sister is part of that story as well. They made their way from kind of backstage life and rented lodgings to dining rooms and salons in early 19th century Ireland and Britain. And their talents, connections, and their own cultural productions helped to shape a kind of distinctively Irish romantic culture. They grew up in Ireland, the daughters of the actor and manager Robert Owenson um, and uh, Jane Hill. Jane Hill was a uh, the daughter of a Shrewsbury uh, merchant um, and Robert Owenson and Jane Hill met while he was touring uh, the marches in, in England. Uh, and there's lots of reason to believe that the marriage was not without its difficulties and tensions, very different um, uh, upbringings and lives. Uh, but when Sidney Owenson tells the story of her young life, she presents it as a happy one, um, often characterising it in terms of song, you know, singing kind of um, stage songs with her father and um, hymns with her mother, that kind of thing. Uh, and uh, Patrick Mom has already pointed out to me that I didn't, in the chapter of the book, uh, that I failed to mention their cat, Ginger, uh, who also played a part in the, in the, family, in the family life. Um, hard times came for the Owenson girls, um, but as I say, they went on to achieve um, uh, some degree of uh, publicity, and especially in the case of Sidney Owenson, lasting literary fame. Uh, and she enjoyed in particular, Sidney Owenson, who became Lady Morgan, a big revival in her reputation after the feminist recovery of women writers in the 1970s and 1980s. And she got kind of taken back into Irish literary studies, uh, thanks to some of that kind of um, work. 
as Lady Clark, Olivia Owenson, also wrote some songs and a play, um, but much of the work is kind of uh, ephemeral and maybe a little bit insubstantial and just hard to track, actually. I mean, I've done my best for this, for this talk and for the chapter, um, uh, but it's, it's much uh, more, more difficult to kind of track down. And one of the problems you encounter straight away is almost everything we know come from, comes from Lady Morgan's memoirs and her passages from her autobiography. So our main source is the writer herself, which is never a good uh, situation to be in. So I've tried to kind of like fill out the story as much as, I, as much as I can and to kind of test some of what they tell us. We get a glimpse into the two sisters as, as young women um, uh, in a late 18th century poem by their friend Thomas Dermody. And Dermody was um, a kind of a, a young, ill-fated Irish romantic writer from County Clare who ran away, you know, in the kind of manner of a poor scholar of his day with just a few, uh, just a few um, books in his backpack, came to Dublin. And one of the people he met was their father, Robert Owenson. And he sort of became part of their household. And in fact, in this poem, he refers to them as his adopted sisters. So they had a kind of a brother in, um, in Dermody. And the poem is quite sort of um, ponderous and a little bit patronising in imagining two young women whose um, close ties to one another are sort of endangered by their own good looks and their beauty. He sort of warns them not to be swayed uh, by fashion and by the fact that they're so gorgeous. Uh, and he puts on a kind of the patriarchal manner of an older poet. Uh, he's himself just as young as them and, and even more precariously situated in financial and economic terms um, than they are, and exhorts the girls to kind of protect their precious bonds um, uh, to, to one another. So it's a bit, and he warns them against affectation and various things. So it's a bit of a kind of a show, this poem. It's a performance, but it's also interesting just in terms of being able to reconstruct what, what might have been the relationship between these three young people. And he kind of undercuts himself at the end of the poem. He says, yes, this idly moral strain is both presumptuous and vain. And you think, yeah, well, it really is, actually. Uh, but, you know, there's an attractive um, uh, kind of undercutting of the self that goes on in the poem as well. And suggesting, I think, some kind of real fondness behind this boyish showing off that goes on in the, the poem. Um, and what the way he had come into the family um, was that Robert Owenson at the time, uh, the girl's father, the actor manager, was working um, uh, in the um, Fishamble Street Theatre. He'd previously worked um, in Crow Street and Smock Alley Theatres. Um, and he began, began this new venture in and around 1784 with the kind of, uh, inspired by the um, Patriot Movement and the Volunteers, uh, to set up um, uh, a, um, well, his daughter calls it a national music hall uh, and a kind of national theatre, but that's much grander than what anyone, uh, any of his contemporaries um, say about it. Um, and in fact, it didn't last very long because there was a dispute about licensing. But while rehearsing there, Robert Owenson met the young and talented Thomas Dermody, who was painting uh, sets and doing odd jobs around the place and sort of took him up and began to look after him in ways. And apparently one of the things that Robert Owenson did for Dermody was to take, you know, give him nice clothes and bring him home and feed him, but then take away the nice clothes, dress him in rags and bring him to booksellers where he would stand around telling people about how talented and impoverished he was and in order to kind of seek help. So it was, a, again, the whole thing is very much characterized by kind of performance and, 
um, and show. Uh, and he did help Dermody get um, the patronage of the powerful uh, Lady Moira at this period, um, uh, by you know, showing him off in, in rags, as I say. Um, and in her first um, collection of poems, uh, Sidney Olson published a volume called Poems in 1801 when she was around 20, I guess. Um, uh, she writes about Dermody herself, so she a poem called Retrospection. Um, and uh, she also talks, she writes in the poem about her kind of vanished childhood home, which if you think about it is a sort of an odd thing for a young woman who's only in her early 20s to be writing about as if the house, her home was already broken up and shattered, but uh, that, that was the kind of precariousness of the life um, they lived. And she talks about the social group um, and she, she imagines Dermody as, as part of it. So the two young, the two girls were educated by their mother at their home in Dromcondra until their mother died in 1789. So they were still quite young when they lost their mothers. Financial difficulties were ever present. Um, uh, but when, as we encounter this story now through the telling of now Lady Morgan, she kind of skips always over these financial difficulties really. You know, you have to kind of look for them only to kind of um, take us through to her successful life in her present. Uh, and the way she tells the story of her youth is always kind of japes and jollity and funny, funny stories, particularly featuring the family servant whom she refers to as the faithful Molly. Um, and so Molly became somebody who remains ever present part of this um, small Owenson household of Robert Owenson, who is at this point now touring and traveling as an actor, leaving the two girls behind in Dublin and uh, with, with Molly and possibly Ginger the cat. Uh, as well. Uh, and there are some curious, I find them curious, early or mid 19th century accounts about the father insisting about how respectable he was and how well he looked after his daughters that make you think some people must have been saying otherwise or possibly even that it was otherwise. Um, so there are accounts talking about the kind of undeviating regularity with which he would take them for a walk every day. Um, or another account which I find quite telling where um, a commentator says, there, he never even had the most passing thought of allowing either of his daughters to go on the stage. Um, and there's a charge to that, the idea that they might have acted and that he might have allowed them to act um, and that they might have then had a kind of more problematic entrance onto public life in the, in the shape of actresses, meaning they'd be very kind of disreputable. Um, and there are some suggestions that Sidney Owenson, the, the older daughter who became Lady Morgan, may have, um, may have acted. Um, one of Robert Owenson's best known parts was the part of Major O'Flaherty in this play, The West Indian, The West Indian by Richard Cumberland, where he played a kind of sentimental, good Irish um, uh, major. Um, and he toured um, a number of uh, theatres in Connemara um, in the 1790s. And that there are suggestions that she may have been acting um, along with them in, in, that, in that period. So following the death of their mother, um, I'm just taking you through their, uh, their, these, these early years of their life, they attended a Huguenot school in um, Clontarf while his father, their father continued to pursue his career on the stage. Um, this is a contemporary illustration of the sheds in Clontarf. And Clontarf in this period has been kind of uh, more and more gentrified with new villas being built in a main line of road coming out from the city centre, lots of 
contemporaries complain that the traffic has become terrible because all the carriages are stopping so people can swim and bathe. Um, and so they're part of this kind of bustling, busy, booming um, area um, uh, where they talk about you know, going um, for walks on the seafront, taking, uh, taking the sea air and so on. Uh, and the way Sydney Owenson tells the story is when, they, when the two girls joined this new school first, they didn't know anyone and they were terribly nervous, but they made friends by launching into singing the ballad of the Battle of the Boyne, um, and a rousing rendition of which won them the, um, uh, the approbation of their, uh, their school fellows. Uh, they, um, the, the, the academy they were in, it was run by a Huguenot uh, woman, Madame Terson, closed um, and they went to a school run by a Mrs. Anderson on Earl Street near Henry Street and Moore Street which was built on the lands which again then were being newly laid out um, by Henry Moore, the third Viscount um, Moore, so that all of that, that, that area of Dublin was being um, developed then. Sydney Owenson didn't enjoy the change from Clontarf and she described um, a change to what she talked about as the most fashionable and fussy part of Dublin where we mix, she said, with the daughters of wealthy mediocrities, uh, and they continued to walk out every Sunday with their father. So they clearly have the sense of themselves as artistic and kind of set apart already in this period. Uh, uh, in the summer of 1803, Robert Owenson took the daughters with him to Kilkenny for the first season of that city's famous private theatricals. And the private theatricals in Kilkenny, people flocked to them, fashionable, the fashionable world of Ireland flocked to Kilkenny in the summers from around, um, uh, around 182 to these theatricals and theatre historians uh, now talk about them as um, a kind of very important halfway stage between the kind of private theatricals and gentry houses that you would have throughout the 18th century and the public stage that was coming into being, especially in the early part of the 19th century, a kind of, a kind of migration of modes of amateur drama, if you like. Um, Shakespeare's finest hour on the Georgian stage uh, was in Kilkenny, according to Michael Dobson. And the Owensons were there as, as part of that and participating in that. While um, uh, Sydney Owenson made herself at home, she describes herself as visiting an old diocesan library where she began to read works of Irish history, uh, making copies and taking down copious notes that she would use for the novel which made her name and for which she became famous, The Wild Irish Girl, and that was published in 1806. So she's in the kind of run-up to that. Um, but she had, as I said, already by 1800 published her poems, and they, she published her poems and she dedicated them to the Countess Moira, who had already patronised and helped the young Dermody, who died tragically young. Um, but she didn't get the same kind of um, support and private patronage uh, that Dermody had. And she has a long list of subscribers as well to the poems. One of the subscribers is, is Thomas Moore. Um, uh, and there's a kind of uh, gushing thing about her father in, the, um, in those poems. Uh, a kind of curious poem, actually, where she's describing him as if he's already dead. He's kind of framed in memory. Um, but in fact, he's busy running around the place um, acting. And around this time, she uh, met um, the famous uh, Sir John Stevenson at Dominic Street, um, the musician, and, and heard him perform Thomas Moore's racy anacreontic songs, these kind of very erotic racy uh, songs. Um, and he invited her, J Sir John Stevenson, who later set the music for Moore's melodies, arranged for Owenson 
to meet um, a Featherstone family who hired her as a governess. Um, so this was her first kind of step so out of school towards earning, which clearly she sort of had to do. She was sustaining um, Molly and her sister uh, at home. Um, and they began to, the two sisters began to attend musical evenings in these early years of 19th century Dublin where they did meet um, Thomas Moore. Um, uh, they wangled an invitation to Moore's mother's house on Anger Street, uh, where polite Dublin society was already gathering to hear the young celebrity Thomas Moore perform on his return from his um, illegal studies in uh, London. And her memoir has given absolutely breathless account of meeting Thomas More, of kind of awakening to um, ambitions for fame by meeting him. And she says she and Olivia stayed up late all night uh, talking and thinking about this. And, and a very curious description, uh, she says that Olivia drew Moore as a young Negro. Um, and so there's something about the kind of exoticizing of Moore, some curious racializing of his um, uh, of his abilities or his talents that's, that's going on there as well. Uh, this is, of course, not long before Moore himself goes to, uh, goes to Bermuda. The question of what would happen to Olivia and to the family servant Molly was a perpetual matter of concern, as far as you can tell from the correspondence. And there's some concern that her sister is delicate. Um, there's talk of her wearing kind of shawls that are too fine just because they're fashionable, getting a chill, needing care and attention. She must take goat's milk, her sister says. And so there's, you know, back and forth about this kind of, um, um, uh, about, about Olivia's uh, state of health. Uh, but she was already well enough um, by 183 to uh, plan uh, to visit her sister with the Featherstones in Westmeath um, and to plan a trip on northward. Uh, their father at this point is in Coleraine where he was acting and so they, they all kind of briefly congregate um, again in, um, uh, in, in Coleraine. Um, Sydney Onsen writes, was writing home to them regularly and also visiting and the letter is she addresses her sister as, you know, my dearest darling pet, uh, my lovely Olivia, Livy, Livabelle. She has a whole sort of series of, of names for her. We we don't have as much of the correspondence on the on the other side. Um, and there is a story in the um, the uh, the Irish Folklore Commission collection in the schools collection uh, that bears on these times. A story from a place uh, near Coleraine called Carrickneghorna, uh, which talks about theatrical performances regularly being given in Ballyshannon. Uh, and the two girls accompanying their father there. Um, after one of these entertainments, uh, a dispute arose between two um, uh, lieutenants stationed nearby who fought a duel over Sidney Onsen. It says, this is a story that was told um, to a teacher, Susan Irwin, um, and one of them was killed. And actually the same story was told to me by Maureen Temple from Maharabeg House in County Donegal. So this story survives and again, suggesting something not fully proper about the lives that these, um, these two young women are, are leading at this period. Um, but Sidney Owenson is working, she's writing to her father who's trying to kind of, trying to keep Olivia in school and pay the bills, uh, but also kind of visiting him from time to time and living with Molly. Where they, where they are being kind of, Molly, or Olivia has been called upon by soldiers um, and there's a kind of, you know, the, the respectability is always fragile and they're being very careful um, about it. 
Um, the, uh, there's also funny stories. There's one story when their father is rolling away from, um, in a carriage from their lodgings at the time in Andrews Street in Dublin, uh, and they look out the window to wave their father off, whereupon a golden bird descends um, from on high and Molly declares it's a miracle and you know God will bring their father safely back to them and, and it turns out um, a painter who's living uh, two floors up has painted a pigeon uh, yellow and that is and so you know they tell these stories in a way of kind of mo to mock themselves and to um, mock Saint Molly and her miracle as they as they say. There's also an account in the same letters of an experiment with phosphorus that goes very badly wrong, resulting in a scorched table, a burnt arm, and a scolding from the landlady. But amongst all these accounts of kind of fun and flirtation, we can find these, again, persistent concerns about the future of the two young women. Uh, their father was declared bankrupt in the early years of the 19th century, and Sydney wrote um, uh, saying, what is to happen to Miss in her teens? Which is how she's now kind of archly referring to her younger sisters. And one solution was to go back to Mrs. Anderson's school, the school that is, had opened on um, nearby Henry Street and, and Moore Street. Uh, but Mrs. Anderson says she'll take Olivia back, but she will not have Molly under any circumstances. Um, so there's a kind of, you know, there's a kind of a, uh, like this kind of fragile grouping of the of the family and Sydney's response to the situation was to write uh, to her father explaining this and saying don't worry I have two novels nearly finished um, uh, and that she is you know uh, governessing and everything kind of will be will be fine uh, and Olivia in the end went to a different school um, in um, uh, near Ballybock Bridge uh, to a woman who was willing to take on Molly as a kind of a, an upper servant um, uh, in the house. And it was close by the house where Owen, Sydney Owenson was governessing uh, for the Featherstones in Dominic Street. Uh, now, in all of this, we could kind of step back for a second and think what it means for somebody like Sydney Owenson in and around you know, the early years of the 19th century to have two novels nearly finished, to want to be a, no a novelist. We're talking about a period in which Jane Austen had all of her novels written at this point, but scarcely any of them published. Uh, they're mostly sitting in her drawer. She was reliant on her brother to kind of go to London and negotiate with publishers. Mariah Edgeworth um, is rather more successful in terms of having direct um, contact with publishers and publishing, even though she is um, uh, you know, living in, in an isolated place in the Irish Midlands in, in Edgeworthstown. Uh, but she also has her father behind her and a landed estate, which is no harm either in terms of how this, uh, you know, how all of this plays out. And if you think back to that idea of dedicating the poems to Countess Moira, this is a period in which um, patronage was still an important way to progress as a writer. So Thomas More, for example, uh, was still hoping for patronage um, in the early years of the 19th century. And there's a, some letters in, in the Moore correspondence where um, Wickham, when he was chief secretary for Ireland, he was the, William Wickham, he was the chief secretary who was on his holidays during Emmett's rebellion, thinks about making Moore poet laureate for Ireland. And that's a, a role that didn't exist then and it didn't exist again until um, uh, the state introduced a, a version of um, the, the, the poet's chair. Um, and Moore writes excitedly to his father to say, I'm going to be made, you know, I could be made poet laureate. And his father cautions him against it. And his father says, it would put you on a ladder, all right, he says, but it is a ladder with only one rung. Uh, so, you know, 
careful basically about how you go about the poetry business. So Owenson is kind of making her way between, and patronage is moving into this kind of really bustling commercial world of print that is hugely taking off from the 1810s onwards. And she's, she's managing it by herself. And, and she also kind of dramatizes the story, I suppose. And one of the ways she tells the story about how she got her first novel published, and her first novel was called Sinclair, and it was published in 183. Uh, and the conventional literary history of this period tells us that, that no Irish novels were published immediately after the Act of Union, because the Act of Union shut down an Irish public in publishing industry that was largely reliant on illegal trade, which didn't, because the Copyright Act was now extended to Ireland, the publishers all kind of didn't know how to do legal business. But she got a novel published in 1803, and the way she tells the story uh, is that she borrowed the maid's cloak from the Featherstone's house, where she was the governess and the bonnet, and she threw her manuscript into, as if she was going out to do the groceries, and put the hood over her head, and went to a publisher and said, do you know my father? My father was Robert Owenson. Uh, and, she, and she manages to get the novel published. So she's incredibly kind of um, uh, intrepid in terms of her um, uh, dealings with publishers. And she goes on to be, she changed publishers more than I think any other woman writer in the Romantic period, going from publisher to publisher, always in, seech, in search of a better deal. With respectability a concern, she's put long behind her in terms of when, when it comes to sort of making, making money. So when The Wild Irish Girl then came out, published in London, 1806, uh, she was kind of heralded as a celebrity. And one of the best stories she tells is about going to the home of Lady Cork um, in London, who had a sort of salon, uh, and describing how she met you know, Lord Byron and Charles Kemble, uh, said finding herself one evening uh, seated on the second flight of stairs between Lady Caroline Lamb and Monk Lewis, kind of squashed in, just sitting on the stairs, watching it all and, and enjoying it. So there's a sense of the kind of the delight in this um, new, new kind of world that she's part of. Uh, uh, and The Wild Irish Girl had a subtitle, The National Tale, A National Tale, uh, which as far as we know was the first time that concept was used and became a very kind of effective branding machine for Irish fiction in the period. Uh, and so she has this like, way of ability to kind of identify, latch onto and repurpose literary fashions uh, that makes her hugely um, uh, hugely successful. Uh, but it still doesn't make her fully independent, and that's interesting too. So people always talk about the Wild Irish Girl as a great success, and she made money and so on, uh, but she was still not able to live independently and to support her sister and um, for a little while her father and, 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 and Molly. And so in 1808, she accepted an invitation to live with Lord and Lady Abercorn at Barons Court in um, uh, County Tyrone and later at their home in Stanmore in Middlesex and she began to sort of travel around with the Abercorns not as a governess now but as a sort of companion who didn't have to worry about paying her own way uh, and who made kind of wealthy um, and influential contacts through them. It's at this point that she met Lord Castlereagh for example who um, took her in his own carriage to meet a new publisher to see if he could get her a better deal for her new novel. So she was kind of working, she was making networks and she was working her, working her connections. Uh, and it was at their home that she met uh, Charles Morgan, who was the physician to the family, uh, a doctor who was also a friend of Edward Jenner. And there's a letter from Jenner to Charles Morgan where he praises Charles Morgan for lashing the anti-vaccinists, uh, which is a, um, a kind of resonant uh, idea now. The story of their marriage is much mythologized. Lots of people in contemporary said that she wouldn't marry him unless he was knighted. 
and the Abercorns arranged for him to be knighted. So when she married uh, him, she married him as Sir Charles Morgan, and she became um, Lady Morgan. And Lady Morgan was then the name under which she published um, uh, her successful novels and travel books, um, uh, of which there, there are um, kind of legion. In 1837, uh, she was granted a civil list pension. Um, uh, having lived at this point, the, the, uh, the Morgans lived on Kildare Street, just across the road from um, uh, where the National Library Manuscripts Room is now in a house that was there. And the instant she got the civil list pension, they upsticks and moved to the newly fashionable Knightsbridge uh, in London and bought a very nice house. And that's, and she's, uh, that's where she's buried. Olivia's story now at this point is getting a little bit um, more difficult to track, but it does have some public dimensions and, and they're, they're a help. With um, her sister, Sydney, she was part of a kind of a, a group of uh, women, intellectual women, that included Alicia Sheridan Lefanu, um, uh, Anne Sheridan Lefanu, um, her daughter, Alicia Lefanu, and Mary Ty, the author of Psyche. And I don't have to tell you too much about all of those women except to say those are all elite women. Um, and that Sydney Owenson and uh, Olivia Owenson uh, are, are much less kind of secure in their pursuit of a life of letters, if you like. And they rely on those other women for support and, um, and influence. And they're making out for themselves. Um, uh, Around 1807, enjoying the success of The Wild Irish Girl, but still on shaky financial ground, Sydney arranged a job for her sister as a governess uh, with the Brownrigg family. And in that family, Olivia Owenson met Arthur Clarke. And Arthur Clarke was an apothecary turned physician who earned fame for his advocacy of bathing and other kind of hydropathic cures. He published several essays on sea bathing. I know there is at least one sea swimmer uh, here tonight. But he's not an early advocate of sea swimming. In fact, quite the opposite. His complaint is that people oughtn't to go into the sea because it's too dangerous. They ought to pay and come to his hydropathic um, establishment where they can uh, you know, experience the good qualities of seawater in, in safety. Uh, and that's, main, that's really what he kind of advocates in his, um, uh, in his study. Uh, and again, when this story of the marriage is told, we're reminded that Olivia was in delicate health, it was difficult, he was older than her. Um, and the way that, I love the way Lady Morgan describes it, she said, she says about Arthur Clarke, she says, he kept a carriage, an advantage which a woman must have lived in Dublin to thoroughly understand. Right, so her, her, her skirts are no longer brushing the dirty ground anymore. She's stepping up into um, a, a, a carriage and, uh, he benefited Arthur Clarke in turn from some of his new sister-in-law's um, contacts, or at least that's what she says anyway. So Olivia comes into public view now um, a little bit um, more. You won't possibly be able to read this, but I'll just quickly tell you the story. This is a kind of glimpse into her from an outside source, Anne Plumter, uh, who travelled around Ireland in 1814, um, often using Lady Morgan's novel O'Donnell as a kind of a guide to travel around Ireland. And she describes a sensation she heard at a party in Dublin. Um, uh, somebody with this, this is Olivia, uh, singular talent approaching to ventriloquism of imitating and singing two very different voices. And so it's a party at the house of 
Lady Morgan, and she hears um, a kind of dialogue, an eclogue, she says, between a man whose voice is old and rough and a squeaking little girl. And imagine her surprise when she goes into the room and these two voices are emerging from the same body, and that body is Olivia Owenson. So Olivia is also a performer, but in this kind of slightly, um, as I say, more ephemeral way, she's doing party tricks um, uh, with her voice. There's an admiring letter from Mariah Edgeworth um, from around this point as well, from 1815, to her brother, where she describes the party at a house of a Mrs. Power in Dublin, where she says, Lady Clark, Lady Morgan's sister, uh, she encountered her, and she's, Edgeworth is thrilled with this. She thinks it's really funny. Mrs. Flanagan, a half-gentlewoman from Tipperary. This is fancy dress. This is Olivia now in fancy dress. Speaking an admirable brogue, an excellent character, uh, with presence of mind and a great deal of humour, her husband standing beside her with a kitten and a macaw. Uh, uh, one can't help but think at this point of the real Mrs. Flanagans who were wandering the roads of Ireland in the period after Waterloo, you know, typhus and epidemics and famine everywhere. But nonetheless, in fashionable society in Dublin, there's dressing up, um, there's imitation, and Olivia Clark is really um, part, uh, part of that whole kind of um, world. She managed to kind of get some of that into print as well, um, and she did that um, in a five-act comedy called The Irish Woman, which was performed at the Theatre Royal um, in Dublin, a comedy of manners, intrigue, and disguise, and so on, published by uh, her sister's publisher afterwards with lots of stage Irish characters. Um, in it, it attracted some kind of good reviews and some snide remarks, basically saying um, this wouldn't be getting good reviews if her sister wasn't who she said who she is, kind of thing. So there's a bit of that debate goes on about her. And in the 1820s, she got some of her um, parodic songs into print alongside um, musical arrangements by Sir John Stevenson in a collection called Parodies on Popular Songs, with a parodotical preface by Lady Clark published again by, um, at the time, Lady Morgan's publisher, Henry Colburn. And the way Olivia Clark talks about it in the preface of these songs, she says, it's a shift from the major to the minor, she says, from the tear to the smile. These are kind of amusing songs. Um, uh, there's a kind of very elaborate preface, which um, uh, I found quite difficult to work out, and we can't really see very well now anyway, so I'll spare you my speculations on it. But basically, it's full of fashionable contemporary references to things that are going on in the period, and you would have to be sort of totally... And the 1820s in both London and Dublin um, and elsewhere in Europe was um, a decade when there was a rage for improvisations, um, uh, impromptu performances, all kinds of dressing up and uh, and so on. So there, Olivia is really, really part of that. And that's probably one of the reasons she was able to get this collection into into print, with, with I say, the arrangements by Sir John Stevenson. Um, and one of the songs about her her own sister. Uh, so one, this is the song that goes: We've a Florence McCarthy. Florence McCarthy was the name of one of Lady Morgan's um, novels. So merry and hearty that I, though I shouldn't say it, an elegant artist. She paints to the life and she causes much strife for a radical slut and a great Bonapartist. Uh, so she's talking about, um, at this point, Lady Morgan's uh, very much allied with Whig causes and she's associated uh, with the cause of liberal, liberal reform. And again, positive but puffing reviews. She's been puffed up because of her, her sister and who her sister is. And one particularly nasty review uh, says um, that 
the songs are fine, he says, uh, only two are worthwhile. He says, anyone could write the rest in 20 minutes, and really, these will only do for Dublin, uh, they're not for London. Uh, so that's the kind of, um, uh, so and, and it shouldn't be a surprise, I suppose, that Olivia herself then, in this very lively culture of fancy dress and performance and so on, became an object of parody. Um, and this I know from Patrick Maugham, who's written a, um, a, a, a conference paper about Olivia Clark and is thinking about getting her into the Dictionary of Irish Biography. Uh, that she is the figure referred to in the orange song, um, I bring you here, the standard orange songbook, um, the orange lilio, uh, which goes, the, uh, the viceroy there, debonair, just like a daffodilio, with Lady Clark, blithe as a lark, uh, uh, comes with the orange lilio. I was Googling the orange lily, and I thought I'd treat you to this photograph of Jerry Adams' orange lilies, which he <laughs> tweeted uh, some time ago. Only to say, I suppose, that that song, or The Orange Lily, with the words about Lady Clark, are actually still in circulation. So she has a kind of funny persistence in popular uh, musical culture, if, if no place else. Um, so throughout these years, the two sisters were often separated. And I'll be coming towards the end now of what I have to, to say about them. As, um, as Lady Morgan, uh, Sidney Onsen travelled to France and Italy, spending years away, long periods, when meanwhile her sister was at home having babies. And Sidney Onsen herself never had any children, and the relationship between her, her sister, and her nieces um, is a very interesting one. It's what, you know, historians of motherhood now talk about the concept of other mothering, of kind of how we forge maternal-like bonds um, with, uh, e even if we're not biological mothers. And certainly there's a kind of um, concern for and a care for and a reaching out for the lives of um, her sister's children that's really interesting in, what, in the way that um, uh, Sidney Onsen uh, writes. Uh, so for example, at one point when she's crossing from Hollyhead, she says, I feel terrible after the journey. She says, you know, is this what, um, uh, is this what it's like being pregnant, uh, having seasickness? So she's kind of is trying to stay as close as possible to her sister's experience of motherhood. And the letters again are so fond, you know, my dearest darling pet, my dear love, and so on, and often blending fashion and family. Um, there's one letter where she says, she writes from Paris, and she says, toques like yours are much worn. Send me word all about the babies and yourself. So it's kind of fashion, and I, um, you, you only have to go onto the Jane Austen websites to find stuff about fashion from this period. The Janeites are all over the fashion. Uh, and so I found this illustration of what a toque looked like, which was a kind of a headband with a scarf wrapped around it, turban style, which in fact had been fashionable in the 1790s and were just coming back into fashion in 1817 and 18. So the, the Onsen sisters were bang on with their hat. Uh, with their hats. And Sidney Owenson from Paris is sending books, scarves, sweetmeats, toys, gossip to her children. And there's one particularly lovely letter written from Paris on Christmas Day in 1818 at 7pm of the evening uh, where she says, Merry Christmas and a thousand of them. If it were possible, I trust at last that we shall see each other this year. We have just drunk all your health in a bumper of Chablis and wish we could enclose you a hogshead of it. Uh, so... There's, uh, there's this kind of um, uh, fondness. 
And it's difficult then uh, and now to kind of continue picking up the thread of the sisters, although they visited each other's houses very often, went to each other's parties. Thomas More's memoirs, for example, uh, talks about um, going to a, one of Lady Morgan's party where he says, I heard some of Rossini's things sung very well by the Clarks, uh, Lady Olivia Clark and her husband. I sung also, Moore says, with no ordinary success. Uh, so it's, it's really about him. Sir Charles Morgan died on the 23rd of August 1843, and Olivia Clark died in Dublin in 1845, buried alongside her father, who had died in her house in Northbridge, George's Street. Uh, Sidney Owenson felt these deaths deeply, and she began to write about how the world was changing around her, and kind of nobody, nobody was left. Um, uh, the children, though, of Olivia Clark remained very um, close to her and precious to her. Uh, so, uh, especially the young woman who was named Sydney, who lived with her aunt during her final years, having herself been made a young widow. Um, and there's a sketch by the niece showing um, Lady Morgan playing the guitar. Uh, the, um, the, you have an absolute hope now of seeing the whale, but this is a little piece about Lady Morgan's whale under a heading called Literary and Artistic Gossip of the Day. And it details the amount of money she left. She left 3,000 to the eldest sister, 2,000 um, uh, to the younger sister. She left handsome bequests to the Governess's uh, Benevolence Society and uh, the Society for the Protection of Servants. Uh, and she left all her Greek and Latin books to her grandnephew um, because she thought it would help in his, in his education. There's a suggestion in the letter that her sister Olivia also had a boy, but there's no reference to him afterwards, so he must have died um, very young. We find a very early effort to tell the sibling story in a late 19th century book called Some Fair Hibernians by Geraldine Penrose um, uh, Fitzgerald under the pen name of Francis Gerard. Uh, and it's extremely fanciful, but there does have this picture of um, Olivia Owenson, uh, Lady Clark, um, and it puts the two sisters on, in this kind of list of kind of you know, famous Irish women, basically, fair Hibernians. And it's interesting that they're the only sister couple in this, um, in this, everybody else is there as a kind of an individual woman. Uh, so what we have, I mean, and this also has the advantage of being written when memories of the two women were still fresh, so some of the stories she has to tell may seem fanciful, but they may have some, some value as well. Um, so what we have, I suppose, in the end is we have this kind of a glimpse really into a kind of fascinating sibling relationship that played out on private and public stages um, and uh, may kind of open our eyes more uh, into this kind of bustling, busy cultural world of dressing up and singing uh, that was part of early 19th century Irish life. So thank you. I'd just like to thank our speaker today, Claire Connolly, uh, for such a fascinating insight into the Owens and Sisters. I'd also like to invite you now uh, to join us for the official launch of the Sisters book, which will take place just after six o'clock in the members' room, uh, which is a room to the front of the building. Um, so again, if you'd just like to join me in showing your appreciation uh, for Claire Connolly today. Thank